Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you'll turn to Zechariah 3, I intend to dive right in. Uh, the notes are available online if you want to go get them at Forerunner Church. Uh, I have a lot of ground to cover, and I almost certainly won't cover it all, but everything that I want to share is in the notes for you to explore, uh, and hopefully you will be encouraged in your spirit in the great purpose of God for your life and this fellowship and this community and what God is doing in the earth. The great story of God, well, there's many great aspects to the story of God, but one of the supreme uh, uh, things we should celebrate is that God delights in taking weak and broken people and causing them not to drown in their weakness and brokenness and the constant reminders and accusations of the enemy that would cause us to live a lesser life trapped in our past, trapped in shame, trapped in guilt, trapped in sin, but instead he actually pays the price himself to change that story and invites us to believe a different narrative and to live out of a different story and to relate to one another out of a different story. Zechariah 3 and 4 are critical passages for the body of Christ. They're critical in particular, though, for the prayer movement. And Zechariah 3 helps lay the foundation of understanding how God does what he does to change our story and bathe us in grace and position us for holiness. And then Zechariah 4 comes along and with that understanding, you see the building of the house of prayer and it's only out of the revelation of grace in Zechariah 3 that you can understand the authority with which they shout grace, grace to the mountain in Zechariah 4. There are challenges in life. There are challenges we face personally. There are challenges we face corporately. There are challenges in our families and our marriages. The earth is reeling from the strain of so many things. Now more than ever, we have to be grounded in a true knowledge of God, how he sees us, what he invites us to, because there's all kinds of piles of rubble in our life, and we have to be able to shout grace, grace to those things, and watch him do the impossible miracle, but that first starts with the impossible, the impossible miracle of what he does with us, and the rubble of our own life, and the, the failures and mistakes where we stand before a holy God guilty and condemned and somehow he changes that story. So let's look at Zechariah 3. I'm going to look at just the first five verses. I'm going to highlight a few key phrases. I'm going to set this up and I'll just tell you kind of where I'm going. We're going to use Zechariah 3 as a story. This is the prophet Zechariah having a series of eight dreams. And I think this is the third. It's either the third or the fourth. This is a dream that he has where he sees Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord. We'll read that. This story, it's a prophetic experience, and it's told in story form. 
Peter, later in the New Testament, helps us connect some dots as to why this story matters to us. And Paul explains the theology of this story in Colossians. He does it in a number of places. I'm going to pick one passage in Colossians. Those are the three anchor verses. We're going to get the story so that we can all see what's happening. Then we're going to let Peter connect the dots to us and Paul explain the theology. It says in verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. I want to emphasize that word before. You're going to see it again. Joshua is a high priest and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Satan literally means the accuser. It's not a title. I mean, it's not a name. It's not a proper name like I'm Dean and we have Bob and Sue and Hannah out here. No, it's not he's Satan. It is a title that describes his function, which means accuser. The accuser is standing at the right hand to oppose Joshua. And the Lord said to the accuser, the Lord rebuke you, accuser. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before, there that phrase is again, the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. The angel of the Lord on Joshua's behalf does a surprising thing. Joshua is in a place and a position where he should be decked in clean robes. Uh, uh, the, the high priest had a responsibility of absolute purity. There's a, there's a massive failure here, a massive incongruity for the high priest to be standing before the Lord in his uh, priestly attire, and it's filthy. Never would have happened in a natural setting, but Joshua is seeing, uh, Zechariah is seeing this prophetically. And the Lord's response is, take away the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua, the angel of the Lord says, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And then Zechariah gets so excited by this, he jumps into his own dream and says, while we're at it, let's put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Well, this is remarkable in a a number of ways, but I'm gonna just give away my ending right here at the beginning because I'm not gonna get to it. Both in his title, high priest, in the language, standing before the Lord, and in a couple of other uh, later verses that we aren't looking at, where the promise to Joshua is that he would govern the house of God, that he would have access to that place, and that he would have charge over the courts. All of this language is... uh, positively pointing to the context of Zechariah's dream. Zechariah is seeing Joshua as the high priest in the temple. All of these things are the, the language you can't get away. You can't just say, well, Joshua was, you know, he saw him out walking down the street or in his home. No, the, the language of Zechariah's encounter is confirming he sees Joshua as the high priest in the temple, 
before the presence of the Lord, which is the Holy of Holies, the very court of God, the throne of God, that's the context. That's important. The reason that's important, this is where I'm going to give away the ending. Scripture works on multiple levels, and especially in prophetic encounters. What Zechariah is seeing is prefiguring the work of Christ. Because Jesus, when he showed up to fulfill the grand story of God and rejoin men, fallen men, to his nature and calling for their lives and the high purpose of God, he did it through his son who looked at a stone temple that was the pride and joy of the Jews. He said, tear down this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And in John chapter two, not, not John chapter two, I don't, in the book of John, he clarifies, actually I think it might be John two. He says he was speaking of his own body. See, when Christ came, there is a principle of incarnation. He became the temple of God, the eternal temple of God on the earth. So for us to understand what's happening here, we have to see that Zechariah is seeing not only the work of God, not only the values of God, but the reason he can do what he's doing is because he's picturing Joshua in the eternal sense of the finished work of Christ. He is seeing that the body of Christ as the eternal temple has achieved something and God the Father is responding to Joshua's dilemma out of the solution that has not yet happened. Because if you read this according to the law, it kind of feels like God is cheating. It kind of feels like, wait a second, he's got dirty robes, this is a mess, there's actually strict penalties for anyone, much less the high priest. The accuser is right. The accuser is merely stating the truth. He's guilty, he's covered, he's dirty. And yet God does something that upends the rules if we're trying to relate out of the old covenant rather than the majesty of the new covenant where something is settled in the temple of Christ's body, the veil is torn, and now we see that is prefiguring that work and Zechariah is getting a glimpse of the salvation to come. This is, um, this is a great mystery, but I wanna focus for just a minute on the work of the accuser. I want to point out again, the accuser actually says the truth. And one of the things that I believe we've got to grab hold of more and more in our day is accurately describing a problem doesn't make you right. Accurately describing somebody else's failure or problem, listen, Satan was a liar, a deceiver, a rebel, a murderer. He was the absolute enemy of God. It is easy to bring accusation. It doesn't actually prove the virtue of the person. It doesn't prove the rightness of the person. It just means you're technically diagnosing the situation in the most clinical terms of truth, but we are never to speak the truth without love. 
There is no love in the accuser's voice. There's malice, murder, slander, deception, and lies, even though technically he's saying the truth. So you got the pot calling the kettle black. You have the worst enemy of God possible, and he's saying, have you seen this guy? And so you have to learn to discern the truth of a situation beyond just the description of it. We have to come to the place where everything we do is filtered in what we perceive, how we receive it, how we emotionally connect to it, and what we deliver out of our interpretation as rooted and grounded in the cross, rooted and grounded in the character and mercy of God, because I don't want any part of my life to agree with the accuser. I don't want any part of my words or the meditations of my heart. I want all of those to be acceptable in his sight. And here's what God does is he rebukes the accuser. See, he, actually, he shows us, I disagree with what he is saying and doing. It doesn't matter that he's telling a particular truth. I disagree with his intent. I disagree with his perspective. I disagree with the very nature of accusation. And I'm gonna show you what I do. In the big picture, I'm gonna provide the permanent solution to shatter accusation over my people. And unless we become the people that agree with that, then we are going to continue to throw stones at one another we're gonna to continue to harm one another and we're gonna to continue to be deputized as agents of the accuser rather than occupying the place of grace in the purpose of God where we raise one another up. We put the balm of Gilead on their wounds. We cause them to recapture their purpose. And that's why God didn't just remove his iniquity and clothe him in righteousness. He put the crown back on his head. God went to great lengths. It wasn't just an act of, of uh, restoring innocence or cleanness. That's the baseline. But God actually cleansed and purified and then went further still. He restored his purpose. The high priest, the crown of the high priest was the turban. And you can be cleansed in your sin and yet not live in the confidence of your purpose. God wants the whole package for each of us. In your life, in your marriage, for your children, in this fellowship, and in the house of prayer, he wants people that are so confident that he is for them, that he is standing in their stead, that he is addressing not only their wicked deeds, but changing their nature and restoring their purpose so that I live in a position where once my crown had fallen and yet he lifts my head, restores it, and across it, it says, holy to the Lord. That's the God we serve. That's how he operates, and that's the lesson Zechariah is supposed to get that is only possible in the fullest sense of the word. It's only possible because 
The stone temple is about to be incarnated. The Son of God becomes the temple, and we, in the Holy Spirit, Paul goes to great lengths. We are many members of that body. We are baptized into that body. Christ, the head of the body, you and I, in seeing what happened in his physical body, are brought spiritually into the eternal reality that we are now in him. So when we read this story, we see what God is doing to Joshua can only be done because he is in him just like we are. His story is our story. To get further insights into holiness, I need to just spend a few moments here. It's not enough to be made clean or restored to a priestly position. See, crowning the mind, you gotta think in prophetic symbolism. It's not just that he was cleansed or restored to a previous position. Listen, your destiny is not compromised. Your destiny, you are not disqualified from your ultimate purpose because you're on a journey. This is part of the narrative that we have to get deep in our bones of how God thinks and acts and works in our lives. I remember hearing a story, kind of funny. Eager tourist was in... uh, someplace in Ireland, in some little hamlet village, you know, just eager, trying to learn all the history he could. He stops beside uh, the road just outside this little village. I don't even remember the name of it. And there's an old farmer out there leaning up against a fence, looking out over his pasture land. Guy pulls over. He's like, man, I'm just trying to learn everything I can. Was there any great men or women born here? The old farmer's chewing on a piece of straw, kind of thinks a moment, looks over at him, says, nope, only babies. <laughs> See, there is a great purpose for your life, but we all start as children before the Lord And what we want to see as the final outcome, he looks at as the joy of relationship. He looks at not just the great thing he's called you to, the righteousness he imparts to you, the crown of purpose and position that he puts on you. He is looking for the full process of relationship where we grow from small and immature and weak and broken to a little more confident, a little more assured, knowing who he is, pressing into who he is. We blow it. He picks us up, puts the crown back on our head, says, keep going. I've got good things for you. Don't stop. And we start to live like those people and we treat others like they are those people too. And now nobody gets disqualified because they've blown it because the whole body is showering them with love and saying, keep going. But even that, to put the crown on the head, is to say, holy to the Lord is giving us the mind of Christ. There is no holiness apart from that man. 
What I want to shift to is a little bit of exploration of what holiness is. We have a diminished idea of holiness. It's a good starting point, but it's not nearly sufficient to live in the fullness of God's purpose. Our idea of holiness is to equate it mostly with the concept of purity. So in other words, you hear a holiness message and most of what you come away with is, I need to not compromise, I need to you know, give my all, I need to be consecrated, I need to be not contaminated or mixed with the world, I need to be holy, and by that, we basically mean pure. That's not wrong, it's a good thing, it's just incomplete, especially because that has almost entirely come to be how we think of holiness. Holiness is actually something far more dramatic. Holiness is primarily a word. The word holy means to be set apart. And the reference for this is that God is holy. Now, he is set apart in a way that there is no comparison to how he is set apart. But when he says, be holy as I am holy, he's describing a different quality than just moral purity. He's connecting everything he is to what he does in us to fashion us as vessels fit for the master's use. To be set apart is to live with such a sense of high purpose and understanding that God is holy because he is other than. It's actually hard in, uh, I don't know if there's another language that could capture these concepts better than English, but to be set apart and to say God is holy is to say you are altogether other than any frame of reference I have. You're inscrutable, you're unfathomable, you're unknowable. Unless you choose to make yourself known, I could never know you. You are so completely set apart and other than that I can't find a suitable comparison and say, I've actually got it. I now know. I've got God figured out. No, he exists beyond every frame of reference. And he is so complete in that. There's no shadow of turning. He cannot be diminished. He will not change. And he is beyond every point that we could consider to be a comparison. Listen, here's, a, here's a, a, a way to say it. There is vastly more similarity between a nasty cockroach and the most beautiful archangel than there is between the triune God and any other thing. Now, you think about that. It's kind of not a nasty thought, but take a, 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 an ugly bug and then compare it to an angel and you would say, there's so much difference. And yet, that difference is still far more the same than God to anything. Because he's holy. And if you think that would offend an angel to say, you don't understand yet why they're falling down on their faces. Because they live in the reality that he is so much more beautiful and glorious. He's not just majestic, he's beyond majestic. He's not just beautiful, he's beyond beautiful. He's not just uh, uh, 
powerful, he's beyond powerful. He's, he's not just anything, he's beyond that. He's other than, and the only way they know to say it is to fall on their face and say, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Now that is a very different invitation to stamp on our, our forehead, to crown us with the ultimate purpose of being given the mind of Christ who is holy and fills us with his Holy Spirit Now we're living a different kind of world, and that's the point. The invitation before us is not that I could somehow be satisfied with the the smallness and tedium of simply not sinning. This has become the outcome of most of our discipleship. Just don't sin. Just don't mess up, just try to stay pure. Listen, that's a, that's a good call, but it, is, it will lead to fleshly striving if you do not understand that there is actually so much more promised and indicated in him. You get to take on the very nature of God and be set apart as he is set apart. And what you are set apart to, no mind can imagine, no heart can fathom the glories that await us in eternity and we can participate in it now. The continuity of your life to future glory should cause us to say, I don't even think about sin. I'm pressing on for a prize. See, we have an invitation in the holiness of God to go so much further, so much further than simply, well, I didn't sin today and I feel good about myself. Meanwhile, you are crafting a story and God is inviting you to fully participate in a story that will endure For all time, should you live 70 years on the earth or with strength 80 or more, you have barely breathed one day of your eternal story. And that is the great invitation that we have been given. Will you be holy as I am holy? Will you be set apart as I am set apart? Your life is now larger in scope. This magnetic sense of purpose rooted in eternity. When you give yourself to that, Mike has often taught over the years on the 90% obedience and the 10%. My wife and I raised our children with the idea of quick obedience and a pattern of obedience, wholehearted obedience. See, that last 10% that we reserve because we think we're getting cut out of some fun, we'll give God the 90% and we'll say we're consecrated or we're pursuing him or we're a disciple or a follower, but it's the last 10% where you're set apart. It's the last 10% where you give yourself completely and only in that moment does your emotional chemistry shift, your vision and perspective shift, your understanding of who God is and how you are. There are 
common graces and great delights in God that those who are satisfied with the 90 will live with and enjoy all their days because God is good. But there are unique provisions in the 10% where we cross over from I want to obey to I am wholly yours. From I don't want to sin to I want to shift history to make you famous. From I'll do what you ask once I kind of consider it to I don't have to even know. Here's a blank check with my life. Do what you want. I'll do it too. That final threshold is what repurposes our life so that we are fully joined to him. It's the only way that we can be holy as he is holy. We, we read that and we think that requires a degree of perfection I could never attain. No, it actually just requires a degree of surrender that is complete. To be holy as he is holy means in my failure, in my weakness, in my immaturity, I will stand in the temple before you. I will let you clothe me when I fail. I will let you crown me when I lose my sense of destiny. And I will let you give me the mind of Christ every time. That final 10% is actually abandonment to the process of grace that keeps you going. It is surrender to God in how he thinks, how he works, how he does. It is not just about 10% more obedience because that actually puts you back in the mode of trying harder and when you fail, the accuser comes along and condemns you. It is understanding that the invitation to holiness is setting our life apart for whatever he needs and we rejoice in that and we let him work us through the refinements and the process along the way. I gotta take a breath. Y'all doing all right? Purity is not an end to itself. And holiness is not a state of accomplishment. It is the presence of a person, Jesus. And this gift comes with far greater privilege, access, gifts, anointing, supply. You can't earn your way into that. You just throw open your arms and say, thank you very much. I'll take what you're giving and you live in the humility of that in that final 10%. The final 10% is what says you could never do 100, but will you set yourself apart to let me work you through what is still weak and immature in you to bring you to a place where you are holy and blameless in maturity? This is the narrative we have to get. I don't want a normal life. This is the great aspiration of many in the church today. I don't want a normal life. I want an other life. I want that thing that causes the world to look at me, causes the world to look at you, similar to how the angels perceive the glory of God when we 
go all the way in being set apart to him, there's actually a a divine transaction where we start to borrow his glory. He starts to let it rest upon us when darkness covers the earth and deep darkness covers the face of the peoples. Then the glory and light of God shines down upon us and there is a marked and noticeable qualitative difference in who we are and how we are. Listen, the church is not without power. The power has been there all along. The church is not set apart. And when we are set apart, the glory of God touches us and then others, as was the testimony with uh, Finney and, and Smith Wigglesworth and others, where strangers who do not know anything about them, they get on a bus and before, before uh, they leave, everyone's gotten saved because he was sitting on the bus and the glory of God hit them and they didn't know what to do and they said, how, how can we be saved? That's when the world starts to say, you have been with somebody. You have been marked by somebody. We see something over your life and it's different than us. It's other than us. And what they are saying in that moment, even though they may not know how, is you are holy. How can we come into this life? I'm not there yet. (laughs) If I was, we'd all be on our faces right now, right? I'm not there. You aren't there. I want to get there. I want to lay down my rights. I want to lay down my preconceived notions. I want to lay down all those little things that are obstacles where I justify the 1%, the 3%, the 10%. Just pondering John 6, Jesus said, if anyone wants to know the will, know uh, what I teach, he will do. If he wants to know, he'll do. We get that reversed. The Lord tells us something, and we say, well, I just need a little more explanation. I just need to understand, because what you're saying right now doesn't really fit with my career path. It doesn't fit with my, the trajectory I imagined for my life. And something about being set apart says, I don't care what it is. Tell me, I'll do it. Whatever it is, and the understanding comes later. I want to be a burning and shining lamp. I want to forsake all others and cleave to him. I want to count the best of my life as rubbish for the sake of knowing him. What would you do with that kind of life? What would you do with the awesome gift of his righteousness? What will you do with your position in heavenly places What will you do with the privilege of knowing an unknowable God and yet he makes himself known by bringing you into himself and places you right in the middle of his heart and life and you are joined to one another and we're all in him together. How would you look at your neighbor differently? How would you look at your spouse differently? How would you look at yourself differently? What would you give yourself to? The call to count the cost was all on the front end. Before you build the tower, you count the cost. After you're in him, you count it all as rubbish. You don't recount the cost. 
disciple of Jesus, follower of Jesus, you are only holding yourself back by reserving some part of your life from him out of fear or misunderstanding that that's the part where he's really gonna trick you. How many times have we said ourselves or heard from others, I wanna follow the Lord, but I'm afraid he's gonna send me to Africa. Right? We joke out of our false knowledge of God. We joke out of the ways we have believed the accusations of the enemy that God is a trickster, not a father. Peter connects this for us. And he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. See, that picture of the high priest, Joshua in the temple, is that was an exclusive family line. It was Aaron's line, and it had, uh, there was a class distinction. A king wasn't a priest, a priest wasn't a king, and none of the tribes but one had a family line that could be a priest. Peter comes along and says, actually take the king, take the priest, take the chosen race, put it all together, and that is everyone who bows their knee to Christ. You are now a royal personage. You are now a priest before the Lord. The priesthood of all believers is a, is a pillar of our understanding of what God has done in salvation. You are given access. You do stand before the Lord. This is our great call. And the fact that we in the house of prayer get to give ourselves to that in even just a little more literal way, just a little more specific and literal way. It's true for all believers, but we get to take that spiritual priesthood and actually enter into a room with other priests. And we are living in a dynamic that was the jealousy of generations, and it's common to us, and I'm appealing to us, do not let this be common. Do not let this 21-year miracle become routine to us. Not only are we spiritually priests, but we are actually practicing priesthood together in this house in a way that is rare in the earth. Colossians. This is where we get the theology. Colossians 1, 21 and verse 22. Paul is taking Zechariah 3 and turning it into theology. He says, you once were alienated and hostile in mind. He's using uh, uh, language and phrases we have to connect back to the story of Zechariah 3 Zechariah was dirty and unclean, and he had lost the mark of holiness, meaning his mind was hostile to God because it wasn't set apart. So we all are Joshua, once alienated, once hostile in mind, once doing evil deeds, and yet now the angel of the Lord, the mystery of the work of Christ, he has done something in his body. He has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us 
See, the language were presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's exactly the scene with Joshua where he stood before the presence of the Lord, but he was broken, weak, sinful, and cast down. What God does is reconcile that fallen state to the eternal, uh, the eternal promise of salvation and life forevermore. He takes these two very different things and he brings them together in the temple of Christ's own body. On the cross, in his flesh, he pays the price to make us holy, to make us blameless, and to present us back before so that our position is not compromised. We don't have to... Listen, one of the things I want the... I would love to see the church lose this language that we're praying to a brass heaven. When you're praying and you don't feel like you're getting an answer, there may be aspects where the Lord is working some things through. He may be saying no and you don't like it. He may be inviting you to a deeper understanding. He may be clarifying what you're praying for, but the heavens are not brass. The heavens have been thrown open. John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and a voice said, come up here. And just a few verses before that, we see Jesus speaking to the church and he says, I am the door. And if I open it, it stays open. And right after that, John says, I looked and saw a door standing open. Listen, the enemy may want to close the heavens, but the hinges have been ripped off. You have access. He has presented you holy and blameless before him in love. He has taken your alienated life, your loneliness, your sense of separation, your hostility toward him. When you were an enemy of God, Romans 5 says, while we were yet enemies, he made us friends. He crossed us over from darkness into his glorious light. Why waste time on the wrong narrative? Why waste time trying to get God to like you? He already loves you and likes you and enjoys you beyond anything you could accomplish even if you don't do the final 10%. He doesn't reserve a special affection for the set apart. It is complete for all. There's just joys you miss out on and I miss out on when we reserve ourselves from him. He doesn't reserve himself from us. Reconciliation is an important accounting concept. I'm gonna say this and then wrap up. When Paul says we have been reconciled, it really matters, that word. It's an accounting concept. And it means to make one account consistent with another, especially by allowing transactions that have begun but have not been completed. Let me say that again. To reconcile is to make one account, my purpose, his high call, the fullness of life and joy, pleasures evermore, total surrender, the great unknown adventure, with God, where I don't know where it's going, I just trust that it's good. Take all of that, that life being reconciled with, well, I cuss and kick my dog, and I got into an argument with my wife, 
and I struggle and I'm weak and I'm immature and I don't always believe rightly and sometimes I accuse others and they accuse me. Sometimes they're right and sometimes I'm right and we're both wrong in the process and I've got this life but I want that life and there's there's not a way. There's not a way between those two things unless someone reconciles the deficit. And so to reconcile is to say there's a difference here in value than the deficit that's here. And Jesus comes along and says, I'll take the entire record of debt upon myself and reconcile these two things together. And we are clothed with righteousness and crowned with holiness. And out of that, we have to get comfortable with the process. Uh, uh, Worship team, you can come up. We have to get comfortable with the process. Hebrews 10 says, For by one sacrifice, he has, for by one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is one of my favorite verses because it says three things that have to be put together. You have to live in the tension of this. By one sacrifice, Under Moses, there were perpetual sacrifices. And Hebrews says, actually, the daily constant nature of those sacrifices was intended to show their imperfection. The fact that you had to have a new sacrifice for every sin and offense. Listen, the temple was not a pretty place. We would have called.
made them friends. Do this in such a deep way. It can never be taken again. Let this truth be like permanence in our souls. God, we've got to move forward into deeper and higher things with you. We need this foundation to be laid at the deepest levels so that we are living at a degree of confidence in your love for us and your voice and purpose, and we aren't continually wrestling with those things. God, set us apart, holy to the Lord, experiencing your joy, experiencing your life. Amen. 